Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion stops here. I want to say I had a swell time co-hosting the Terry and Jesse show, Just uh, we completed just moments ago, whenever you might happen to be listening to this via podcast or uh, on the YouTube or the website. Uh, I just, in real time, came off co-hosting Terry and Jesse show with Terry Barber, and I uh, had a wonderful time talking about a bunch of interesting issues and um, leading into some of what we're going to be talking about today. My title for this, our, our overarching topic is, Is Salvation for Everybody? We're going to be talking about that later in the show. We're also going to be talking about the parable of the prodigal son and, uh, and patrimony and, and the relationship between redemption and salvation this is important stuff because at the end of the day, salvation is the really the only important thing uh, when it comes to your eternal destiny. Also, uh, starting uh, in in this segment by uh, looking at an article that was written by Father Dwight Longenecker regarding a, uh, a recent book called The Return of the Strong Gods, and he says that uh, dogma liberates while relativism enslaves, and that seems kind of uh, paradoxical, perhaps, or, uh, you know, it's not uh, the, you know, the, the normal way that people present things, but he makes a very strong case, and I have to agree. So going to start there. Also, as always, doing our very level best to keep this on the, uh, the level of no nonsense. So Father Longenecker's article, he talks about Rusty recent book. He said that it opened his eyes to some of the reasons why relativism has become so prevalent in the West. And it begins by uh, saying that there were a host, a kind, of, a kind of panoply of intellectuals after the Second World War. And he says, you know, theolo- theology, theologians, philosophers, economists, political strategists, literary figures, and so forth, they were all kind of came to this conclusion that the wars that tore Europe apart, you know, going all the way back to the 1500s and through the 20th century, were all um, the fault of dogma, people that had these strong beliefs, okay? And I guess you can see why they thought that, because they begin with the wars of religion. And so you have, uh, you know, the Catholic versus Protestant, the Thirty Years' War in, in Germany, for example. Uh, and Europe was, was torn asunder because of these opposing beliefs, I would make the case for dogma being on the Catholic side and more like it's not one dogma versus another, but a true dogma versus heresy. And so I'm not entirely on board with this picture. But, but this is the way it was conceived by secular thinkers. And unfortunately, theologians um, too often fall into that. And so it had an impact on theology. And this is something I've been saying about the Second Vatican Council for many years, is you have to put it in its historical context, that uh, this is, you know, within... Uh, a couple of decades of the end of the Second World War. And Europe had seen in that single century not one world war, but two. And saw the not only a devastating loss of, of property and, and human life, of course, but, but the shipwreck, shipwreck of the faith of millions upon millions of people because of all of these terrible things uh, happening to them personally. And so it had, it had a, a, a definite effect on the way they approached the Second Vatican Council, that it wasn't going to be all dogmatic, that it was going to be pastoral, that we need to get away from all those rigid definitions and come up with, uh, you know, these more practical solutions to our various problems. You know, we should work together with 
Protestants, look at the things that, uh, that unite us and, and kind of downplay the things that divide us. And we're going to recast and reimagine the ageless doctrines and reframe them with, with new formulations that all Christians can agree to. And I think you can see the, 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 the seed of the, uh, you know, of the problem right within that statement. But, but I get it. And, and Father Longenecker agrees. He says, you can see the advantages uh, of such a process and understand how people are looking for solutions to the problem of war and revolution. But the, resultant, uh, the result of the abandonment of dogma is relativism, and that brought along a whole new set of problems, problems um, that he very generously says they could not have foreseen uh, because of the uh, kind of leaky nature of relativism itself. But to go to his core thesis is that dogma liberates. And he says, but that's only if it's kept within its proper place and proper balance. You know, uh, he would suggest that the post-war thinkers were correct that dogma, you know, a rigid set of, of rules or whatever, it, it tends towards division. But if you espouse a dogma, and the, this, the reason why is that when you, when you espouse a, a dogma, it is human nature to be suspicious of those who refuse to follow that dogma. And so we kind of separate into, into tribes of people that believe like we do and, and who see others as a threat. Clearly, we can see that in what's going on in the, our country right now. You know, we gather into the, you know, with the people that, that agree with us and, and demonize the people that don't, right? They have to be converted or they have to be eliminated. But that's a distortion of dogma, he says. And even though it follows naturally, it doesn't necessarily follow. And he said the problem is that that's, uh, it happens when dogma is treated as an end rather than a means. See, all rule-based uh, religions, uh, all, all rule-based systems um, have in common, you know, rules and regulations that are necessary. And, you know, he brings up the, the analogy of sports. You can't play a baseball game if you don't play according to the rules. And it ceases to be a baseball game, or, or a, an orchestra can't play a symphony without the score. Okay? But at the same time, you can't climb, you know, you can't go upstairs unless you climb the steps. But he points out that the score, the rules, the steps, these are the means, right? The musical score isn't the symphony. And the latter isn't uh, the ascent, right? It's only when dogma and doctrine are kept in their proper place that they become liberating rather than enslaving. See, if they're operating as, as kind of as the map for the journey, right, as, as the score for the symphony, then it becomes a source of unity rather than a source of division. And that's why if a, another person doesn't agree with the dogmas and doctrines, there's no need to coerce them any more than an athlete would have to coerce another person to play the game with him. You, just, you, know, you don't have to play the game. But if you want to play the game, you have to agree to the rules, and that way, you know, if they won't, holding to dogma in the right way means that we grant them the freedom to go their own way. That was our good Lord said to the disciples. You know, you go into the house, and if they won't receive you, you go into a town, they won't receive you, they won't listen to your message. He doesn't say anything about, uh, you know, putting, putting a gun to their head. He says, you know, to, to go on your way and shake the, shake the dust from your sandals, as he says. So dogma is liberating because it gives you a framework of belief and, and certainty and structure by which to, to go on this journey. And that's the paradox, because uh, dogma, which seems to be rigid or restrictive, is actually liberating. 
Whereas relativism, which seems to deliberate, hey, you know, you get to do things the way you see it, actually enslaves. Because human beings, and we see this playing out right now in our own society, even in our own church, they can't live with relativism. People need certainty. People need a creed. And if they don't have one, they will devise one. You can't live without dogma. If you don't have one, you'll make one up. Unfortunately, what we devise are ideologies. And this is something, again, that, that uh, has been pointed out by a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I am. But it's true of heresy. We have a tendency to, to um, take one thing and a true thing, but then make it into the whole thing. You take one truth, and then that truth becomes, for you, the whole truth. And so he, he talks about uh, ideologies um, are the result of relativism. And with nothing, he says, nothing secure on which to grasp, people come up with a cause on which to campaign, and with it a set of beliefs. And then he lists them off. You know, in religion we have fundamentalism and neo-Puritanism. In, in the social sphere, feminism and homosexualism and environmentalism, the, the quote-unquote anti-racism of today, which is really just its own kind of racism, nationalism, globalism, and in the big ones, fascism, communism, socialism, you name it. It doesn't matter if they're right or left. They're ideologies. They're philosophies that are like heresies. They're, they're uh, driven by a single idea. And he says that this enslaves because the ideologue is far less tolerant far more, if you, you know, uh, will excuse the word, dogmatic than a person who actually holds to proper dogma because ideologues don't allow dissent. You know, no interpretation, no, no nuance, no ambiguity. They don't engage in discussions. They start with, with condescension, you know, perhaps tolerating another view. And then, but as they accumulate power, then they move to ignore and then to isolate, and then to silence, and then to exclude, and finally to eliminate. And we see it played out again and again all around the world now for, for uh, you know, a century. You don't have to be uh, a medievalist or, or a theologian to figure out that people down the ages who have been religious have also been ideologues. Like I say, any heresy, it starts with something that's true, but then they try and make that one truth the focus, uh, you know, to replace all truths. And, and one of the most pernicious that's happening right now and within our church itself is the truth that God loves unconditionally. He does. God loves us unconditionally. He loves you no matter what you do. But if you make that your whole truth, then you get comfortable with the idea that it doesn't matter what I do because God's going to love me anyway. But God's love doesn't translate into your salvation. Think about our good Lord, and he loved uh, in, a, in a way, even a maternal way, and we'll talk about that when we get back, that he would look over Jerusalem and say, even though you kill the prophets, even though he was about to enter into his own passion, he says, how long have I longed to gather you? like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But we know what happened, don't we? When we come back, we're going to explore that when we look at the parable of the prodigal son, when no-nonsense Catholic continues right after this. Stay with us.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Healthcare news today seems to be coming from everywhere and everyone. It's confusing, at least, and untrustworthy at the worst. Dr. Asetta is a faithful Catholic in the Kern County community. He is trustworthy, well-researched, and will only give expert opinion on matters in his own specialty. Catholic teaching at its entirety is of utmost importance to Dr. Asetta. Give Dr. Asetta a call for your obstetrics and gynecological needs at 661-695-6617. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we're talking about uh, the danger of relativism, the danger of ideology and heresy becoming, uh, because those things are enslaving, whereas proper dogma actually liberates. And I want to use as a example the parable of the prodigal son, Um, one of the most famous uh, uh, parables in the New Testament. It's from Luke chapter 15. And we're going to kind of just go through it line by line and then come back and and look at all the various repercussions. And the reason I bring this up is because it is a corrective to the um, kind of Christian ideology that God loves unconditionally. Absolutely true. But when you take that as though it were the whole truth, it becomes a distortion. It becomes enslaving. People become enslaved to their passions because they think that God is indifferent to their sin. And, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. God loves us all. Further than that, God loved us so much. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son who died on the cross for your sins, who paid the price for your sins so that you could be free from original sin, so that you could uh, be absolved of your personal sins, so that you might be saved. And it's not automatic. And, that's, and here's, here's the smoke and gun. 
parable of the prodigal son. It begins uh, in verse 11 of Luke 15. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said, Father, give me the portion of substance that falleth to me. He's asking for his inheritance. Now, back in the first century, uh, under the Jewish law, a, a younger son received only half of the inheritance of uh, the eldest. But, of course, as long as his father is alive, he d- can't count on anything. He doesn't have any inheritance at all. And so uh, this, this father in the story, in the parable, is, is by no means bound, legally or morally, to give uh, his younger son uh, the, the portion of his inheritance that he could expect when the old man passes away. But rather than force him to stay home against his will, he gives it to him, knowing that I I suspect that very soon he's going to regret it. Uh, The father did so. Not many days after, the younger son, gathering all his property, went abroad into a far country, and there he spent his substance in riotous living. So presumably he expected to have more liberty the further away he was from his father's house. Right? He, he was someone who's chasing, chafing under the discipline of the home life and doesn't want to be under his father's supervision, uh, considers that all unnecessary and certainly an affront to his own dignity because he can live life the way he wants to and he's going to be much happier that way if he's own master and I can, uh, I'll be much happier if I can do anything I want. <laughs> Which is well, that's so wonderful. I remember one of my first uh, speaking engagements after my conversion, I gave my little conversion testimony to a confirmation retreat audience, uh, these young people, and and a, and a young girl said, but but all this is, you know, I mean, can't, uh, we can only be happy if we get to do whatever we want. And I, and I just said to her, young lady, that's just, that is a lie from the pit of hell. <laughs> you know, follow your bliss is absolutely the worst possible advice anybody can give anyone uh, if that person is not very, very well formed. Okay. Um, so the, the, the happiness of the father's house uh, is, has become tiresome to this young fellow, and he wants to go off and live his own way. Uh, and, you know, he joins his, his flatterers and uh, his lewd companions and indulges in the eat, drink, and be merry lifestyle. Riotous living, it says. Then, after he had spent all, there came a mighty famine in that country, and he began to be in want, right? His friends abandoned him as soon as the money ran out, and uh, he, they couldn't get anything more out of him says, then he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his farm to feed swine. All right, so he's gone from being a favored son in his father's house to living it up, to losing all his money, to now uh, going to work feeding swine. And remember, of course, for uh, a Jew at that time, they, the swine were unclean. You couldn't eat pork and you couldn't associate with them without making yourself unfit for public worship. All right, so he's paying a price. That's, that's, that's a far way to fall. And uh, he says, Here he would fain have filled his belly with the husks the swine did eat. But entering into himself, he said, How many hired servants in my father's house have plenty of bread, and I here perish with hunger? I will arise and will go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am now, uh, not now worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants." Then he rose up and went to his father. Not only has, has he fallen so low as to have to uh, make his meager living feeding the swine, he apparently thinks that the food that he's feeding the swine is better than what he's living on. And he realizes that to be a hired hand on his father's farm would be a better existence. And so he um, determines to return to his father's house 
beg his forgiveness and not ask to be returned to the dignity of a son of the household, but merely to be able to stay on as part of the hired help, right? And it's a striking expression, says entering into himself, right? He actually took a look at what he had done and the reality of the situation and realized not only that he was in the wrong, but that he owed his father an apology. Does that, does, does, does that mean the father didn't love him anymore? Obviously not. Um, he says, uh, let's see, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm not worthy to be your son. And he's going to rise up. That's, he's determined to tell his dad. But what happens? When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion and ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. But the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, I am not now worthy to be called thy son. So much is in this one little passage. It says, while he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. What does that tell us? Well, for one thing, it tells us the father was looking for him. He was hoping for his return and keeping his eye out to see if the son would come back. That tells us the father loved him very much. Did the father follow him into that far country and try to force him to come back? Or even cajole him to come back? No. He had the example of the life that they had lived together. It was very clear that the son had a place in the father's home, that he himself had you know, uh, uh, removed himself from, from that situation, even to the point of saying, I want my inheritance. Since you don't get your inheritance so your father dies, he was essentially saying, I wish you were dead so that I could have the money and go live my own way and finally be happy not having to conform to all your stupid rules. But the father knows that he's going to learn the lesson and, and, or hopes that he will, and he's watching for him. So he sees him when he was yet a great way off, and it says, moved with compassion, he ran to him. When he sees that he's on his way back, he runs to meet him. And then he hugs him and kisses him. Uh, but, the fa- but the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm not worthy to be called thy son. Um, and the father said to the servants, Bring forth quickly the first robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Father sees his wretched condition, and at once he orders the servants to restore to him all of the garments and ornaments befitting a son of the family. The first robe, he says, bring the the, the first, the best. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Because this my son was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Well, you can picture yourself the emotion. What was that son feeling? who was resolved just to beg for, for a, a place amongst the hired hands to be welcomed in this way, not, not just uh, welcomed, but feasted and honored by his father. Because why? Because he was sorry. Because he was sorry. Uh, the, the emotion of the son, the, the joy of the father, the rejoicing of everyone, especially the, you can imagine the servants so happy that the son has been restored to his father, that he would no longer have to grieve over his lost child. He said he, is, he was dead and has come to life again. He wasn't really dead. He was dead to him, though. 
He was dead to the society of his household because he had killed himself, if you will. He'd removed himself. He was lost and now is found. But the story continues. Now the elder son was in, his elder son was in the field, and when he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. Calling one of the servants, he asked what these things meant. The servant said, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe. And he was angry, and would not go in. His father, therefore, coming out, began to entreat him, right? Saying to, to say, come, you know, come on in, take, take part in, in, in the rejoicing. But he answers his father, Behold, for so many years do I serve thee, and I have never transgressed thy commandment. And yet thou hast never given me a, a kid, right? Like a, a little goat, much less a, the fatted calf. Uh, never hast given me a kid to make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son is come, who hath devoured thy substance, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. He could understand his father's treatment of the, the returned prodigal. And, you know, in his anger... He, he makes himself out, you know, that his father loved his brother more than he loves him. But the father replied, Son, thou art always with me, and all that I have is thine. Yet it was fit that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and is found. You're always with me. What's he saying? He says, you have far more than your brother. You, you, you have the happiness of being here, and, and yes, you never transgressed. So everything that I have is, is yours. You know, you, you're, this, the entire patrimony belongs to you precisely because of that. You know, what our Lord is teaching us in this story, in this parable, is how willing God is to receive the penitent sinner and how uh, how he rejoices at his return. So he describes the falling away of the sinner from God, the return of the sinner from God, God's reception of the penitent sinner. Right. So in the parable, the father is God, uh, the elder son are the, represent the just, and the younger son represent the sinners. As it says elsewhere, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that doth penance than over ninety signed just. 99 just that need not penance. The rejoicing is for those that are lost and have been found. And we can see this process as it plays out in our own life. And we can see the danger of taking one truth about God, which is to say his, his unconditional love for us, and trying to make that the whole truth of our religion, which leads to to such uh, uh, things as the idea of universal salvation. Hans Urs von Balthasar, great theologian, said, dare we hope that all will be saved, that none shall go to hell. And it's like, well, I hope is a theological virtue. But that sounds more to me like wishful thinking when we understand the process of salvation. Back with more on this when we uh, return in just a few moments. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay tuned. We shall return right after these messages.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com, code VMPR, live porn free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877 543 3871 because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Talking about the parable of the prodigal son here on No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold with you, your internet home for keep it simple Catholicism. And I want to look at uh, um, what we see, you know, kind of the process that is illustrated in this parable that uh, was taught by our Lord himself. First is that we begin to fall away uh, uh, from God, from our Heavenly Father, by allowing unlawful desires to take possession of our heart. Right? And as a consequence, then, we start looking at God's commandments. We start to chafe under them. We start looking at those as, as uh, restrictions of our liberty. And, and we long for greater freedom, or in this case, really, license. Right? And, and then what follows on that is a, a loss of the taste for prayer and for the Scripture. We start thinking we'd be much happier if we could just live according to our own passions. And then having separated yourself inwardly from God, then an outward separation follows. When you start renouncing the friendship of good people who remind you of these things, you start, you know, you don't want to deal with the just. He doesn't want to be with his father and his brother anymore, right? The man in the parable. And you start neglecting the services of the church. You start, stop frequenting the sacraments. You start following your own way. And then pretty soon you're elbow deep in um, breaking the commandments of God. So the commandments, it's so very important. Yes, God loves everybody. God loves everybody without condition. 
But salvation is not unconditional, quite the opposite. In fact, all through the gospel, we see again and again people asking our good Lord, how do you get to heaven? How do I have eternal life? And he gives a number of answers, but most often that answer is keep the commandments. How do I achieve eternal life? You, if you will keep the commandments. If you love me, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. How do I know that you love me? If you keep my commandments. You will love me if you keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. How do we know if we love him if we keep the commandments? It's very, very clear. But do people keep the Ten Commandments? I would suggest to you that everybody in the world followed the Ten Commandments. Um, everybody would be much, much happier. It would, the world would be a far happier place. We would be without strife and dissension and all the myriad problems that are uh, facing us at this present moment. And the Ten Commandments, I mean, it's not, it's not hidden wisdom. According to the Holy Scriptures, the Ten Commandments is, is, it represents the natural law. St. Paul says of the Romans that this is a law that's written on the heart of man. But we don't. We don't follow them because we think we have a better way, because we are easily offended, because we want to do our own thing to make ourselves happy, and we believe that uh, falsely that that is the, the course of happiness. And so how do you be happy in a world uh, where you're following the Ten Commandments, but uh, hardly anybody else is, or at least where you're trying. Well, and that's why our good Lord tells us about the Beatitudes, that there is, in fact, a course for happiness in this world, that you can rejoice and be glad and consider yourself blessed even though you live uh, under persecution, even though people uh, revile you, even though people revile you because of your goodness. You can yet be happy, you know, and the Beatitudes are another topic for another time. Perhaps we'll uh, uh, tackle that in the weeks to come. Right now, though, that's the first part of things. And that, that explains why um, this young fellow, when he falls away from his father, he wants to go to a far country. He wants to get as far away from, from that example, far away from that, uh, that uh, pricking of his conscience. That's one of those things you see so often that people, um, they, they want uh, tolerance, Right? You can see that in the, in the alphabet soup rainbow unicorn movement. We just want to be tolerated. We just want you to be treated like other people. We just want to be tolerated. And it's like, no. and then it's, but that's never good enough. There always has to be more. And finally, it has to be, you have to accept this is good. You have to admit, in fact, that you're bad and I'm good. Right? We, we, they, they demand a, a total reversal of things. And why? Because they can't stand that constant reminder that constant pricking of the conscience, right? I, we fall into the psychological mindset that people, well, the only reason that, uh, that um, uh, say, active homosexual men are far more likely to commit suicide than their heterosexual counterparts. Why is that? Well, it's because people look down on them. It's because people don't treat them right. And yet, it's still true in those places where that lifestyle is very accepted, and, and there needs to be a reason for it. But this is, why, this is why the young man goes into a strange land. It signifies that, that forgetfulness of God, because that's, that's how you do it. And, and God allows it. He allows the sinner to go his own way. He's given man free will. He doesn't want forced obedience, because that's not love. Right? He wants, he wants our obedience to, be, uh, to, to proceed, to spring from our love for him. And so in this forgetfulness of God, the young man squanders his fortune. And, and what is that? What does that represent? Well, both the natural and 
supernatural gifts that he has received, right? His health, his, his physical powers, his reason. He's using those things to offend God. So he's acting rather unjustly, rather ungratefully, certainly towards his, his creator and benefactor. And then you lose the grace and you lose, uh, you no longer are an heir to heaven. That's the thing. This, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, was so irritating to me, becoming a Catholic and then discovering um, the traditional liturgy and the traditional theology and so forth, is that um, at some point in the 20th century, I had been robbed of my patrimony. That I have a, a, a theological and a liturgical inheritance that was taken from me. You know, I was robbed. Is <laughs> kind of the way that I that I see it. But uh, but I've discovered it, and and it is like a pearl of great price. So the sinner, having then forsaken the services of God, falls into the servitude of Satan and becomes a slave of his passions. And that's what we're talking about, dogma versus relativism, that dogma liberates while relativism enslaves because you become a slave of your passions. Because the more you give in to your uh, lower nature, the more you give to your, uh, into your passions, the more dissatisfied you become. And no pleasure of the sense can ever give you happiness. And then you feel a void in a spiritual hunger that you are powerless to appease. That's, that's the, the, the uh, proverbial God-shaped hole, you know, that, that emptiness that only God can fill. And so you know no rest. Um, and and St. Augustine says, well, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 2, Know thou, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing for thee to have left the Lord thy God. All right, so that's it. That's the first thing is that separation. And uh, uh, the sinner's return, though, is conversion is an, uh, a reverse process. It begins with a sincere examination of, the own, of his own heart. Scripture says he entered into himself, right, and faced the, uh, the gravity and the number of his sins. And then, with the help of God's grace, confess that his conduct has been wrong, that he's been ungrateful, he's been foolish, that he's miserable because he's forsaken God, because he's gone his own way. And then he must try to recall the joy and the peace that were his before he fell into sin, and to look at the future, to look at death and judgment and eternity. I have a favorite uh, verse from the book of Ecclesiasticus. Remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin. Right? That's why Catholics are encouraged to keep before us the four last things, to remember death and judgment and heaven and hell, that these, these are the great realities toward which we are progressing every single day. And then that's what, that's what enkindles the desire to be at peace with God and to be, to be sorry and to repent for your sins. And that is the key to salvation, not to fall back on, oh, you know, I, how many times... In, in my 20-plus years of being Catholic, how many times have I encountered some friend or family member hasn't been going to Mass? Of course, this is outside of our current situation. But someone who has, you know, uh, kind of gone their own way, stopped going to Mass, and, and I say, but, you know, aren't you concerned about uh, your eternal destiny? And they say, you know, it's okay. God knows what's in my heart. You ever heard that? God knows what's in my heart. And my response to that has always been the same. I have terrible news for you. God knows what's in your heart. Okay? There is such a thing as justice. God is merciful. God is just. God is loving. 
He loves without condition. He grants his mercy freely. But we must ask for it. We must return. We must repent. Be sorry for our sins and ask for his forgiveness, and he will be faithful to forgive. All right. This this parable um, also then shows us God's reception of the penitent sinner. You know, that's one of those things. I can, I can recall, I've told the story of my first confession so many times, but, you know, then after my very first confession, when I, after I came into the church, confession became a regular part of my life. And I have certainly been Catholic long enough to know what it feels like to not want to go to confession. I know what it feels like to, to say, I don't want to go into that little box for the umpteenth time and accuse myself of the same stupid sins that I keep falling into and that never seem to make any progress against. Um, you know, I, I, I know what it is to be reluctant to go. But I can also say that as reluctant as I have ever been to go to confession, I have never regretted going to confession. And that's the thing. God receives the penitent sinner the way the father of the prodigal son received him. God is very pleased with your repentance. And he is there. He rejoices and calls upon the angels and the saints to rejoice with him. Because a person who was dead, supernaturally speaking, who had lost the state of grace, who had lost the supernatural life of of the Trinity in his or her soul, someone who is under the sentence, remember that God loves you unconditionally. Imagine how it grieves him to think that you are going to, you know, that you're on a trajectory to eternal punishment. No, he rejoices that the person who has lost that supernatural life and who was, who was under the sentence of eternal death is once more alive, once more a child of God, once more an heir to the kingdom of heaven. Our good Lord calls us not servants, but friends. But note the condition. We are his friends if we keep his commandments. All right. uh, A few more things about salvation and some of uh, questions that folks have about it and how we can best answer those questions when we come back with more No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you along with us. Stay tuned for the final segment. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app (laughs) for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. 
Daniel, what a testimony. And I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. In Luke 7, Jesus said, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven her, because she has been shown great love. According to St. John of the Cross, Christians should always remember that the value of their good works is not based on number and excellence. Their value is based on the love for God that prompts them to do the works. May we always be motivated by true love for God and not worry so much about what we do, but why we do it. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to a uh, final segment here on today's No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you along with us. Talking about salvation and here's some of the uh, questions or objections that uh, uh, folks who are not Catholic make, uh, starting with the, uh, the our Bible Christian brethren, pretty common to to hear the question: Why do Catholics try to earn their salvation, despite the fact that salvation can only come as a free gift from Jesus Christ? Well, okay. The short answer is Catholics don't try and earn their salvation, and salvation is not a free gift from Jesus Christ. In fact, you know sometimes. <laughs> Uh, we'll be having conversations about various things, and I will make the comment, maybe, you know, uh, salvation isn't for everybody. Maybe salvation isn't for everybody. It makes my wife no end of upset. You can't say that. Don't say that. Of course, God wants all to be saved. It's very clear in the, the Scripture. This is God's will for you. It desires that all men should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. All right? That's what God would like to have happen. But the grace... Uh, you know, salvation is not a free gift from Christ. The grace necessary for salvation is a free gift. But as we just learned from the prodigal son, you have to cooperate with that grace in order to be saved. It's not about working your way to heaven. It's about cooperating with God's grace. Jesus Christ, every Catholic knows that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he opened the gates of heaven, and that the gift of redemption is a free gift that everyone, including the, the worst enemies of the church, have in fact been redeemed. And this is a gift that no amount of human good deeds could ever earn. However, we receive Christ's sanctifying uh, grace and Christ himself into our souls uh, first at baptism. And this is the beginning of the conditions. It's our, our good Lord himself told Nicodemus, how do I enter into eternal life? He says, you can't enter into eternal life unless you are born again of water and the Holy Spirit. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. So there's condition number one. He also tells us that, uh, for example, in John chapter 6, 
that unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. The, the Greek word there is zoe, eternal life. But on the contrary, it says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. He shall have eternal life. I shall raise him on the last day. Right? I already mentioned keeping the commandments. Our good Lord mentions time and again that you must keep the commandments. And if you refuse or neglect to keep the commandments in, in a serious matter, right? And you're talking about a mortal sin. Our Lord will not remain dwelling in your soul. Terry and Jesse end every program by saying, what state should we be living in? And they say the state of grace. And what state should we not live in? The state of mortal sin. And this is the point of uh, our Lord instituting baptism so that we can be freed from the guilt of the original sin as well as uh, from our own personal sins. But then he institutes the sacrament of confession that we can be absolved of sins that take place after our baptism. Our, Our good Lord makes the grace necessary available to us, but we must avail ourselves of it. If you drive the Lord, um, you know, the life of God out of your soul through mortal sin, you can't expect to be saved. St. Paul warns the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 on this whole list of sins. Uh, And he says, those who do such things shall not obtain the kingdom of God. And for for our once saved, always saved, separated brethren, I would point out that St. Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to people that have already been saved, quote-unquote. But he can tell them that they will, but if they commit these sins, they're not going to obtain the kingdom of God. But, of course, it must be added that Christ will always forgive. He will always return divine life to the sinner who approaches him with sincerity in the sacrament of penance. And and it's, it is. it's it's The sacrament of penance, uh, confession, is such a blessing, and it um, I, I'm sad for Christians that don't uh, have the sacraments. That, you know, um, I'm, I'm having a difficult time getting to confession during the, the uh, current circumstances, but I think that I'm in a state that these, uh, our separated brethren, live in all the time because they haven't recourse to the sacrament. And, and what, a, what a, a loss that is. And, you know, we know that, that true contrition, perfect contrition, is sufficient to absolve you of your sins. You can get back in good graces with God just by being really, truly, sincerely sorry because you have offended God. Not because you're afraid of going to hell. Not because you uh, fear the, the consequences of your sins or, or you're living with the consequences of your sins and, and find it uh, uh, unpleasant. But merely because you've offended God. You see, that, that imperfect contrition is sufficient if you go to the sacrament of penance, but to, to try and survive without that, very, very, very difficult. Uh, just what a great blessing it is. You know, um, we look at St. Paul, again, talking about salvation. If salvation was guaranteed once and for all, uh, from the moment that you receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, why would St. Paul write that I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. I'll tell you something. If St. Paul could be concerned about the loss of his salvation, you and I uh, should probably spend some time thinking about it. <coughs> um, our, our, our good Lord, or St. Paul, rather, again, tells us, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. Right? 
Uh, our Lord said, Unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. And he that shall persevere to the end shall be saved. Right? Uh, and all of these things, we must fulfill all these requirements, even though we recognize just doing that on your own is not sufficient, nor is it even possible to fulfill all our Lord's uh, requirements for salvation without the free gift of his grace. Okay, so that puts that to bed. Uh, uh, a related question, why do Catholics believe good works are necessary for salvation? Because Paul says in Romans 3.28 that faith alone justifies. Well, first off, St. Paul never says that faith alone justifies. In fact, the only place in the New Testament where the words faith and alone are together is in the uh, letter of James where the words not by are right in front of them. Now, but we do believe that uh, good works, that cooperation with God's grace is necessary for salvation, faith and good works, because it's the teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 6 that what uh, Jesus wants is faith that worketh by charity, right? Faith working through love. You look at Matthew 25, our Lord makes it very clear that at the end of all things, when he's separating the seeds from the goats, when he's... Uh, uh, separating the wheat from the, the chaff and gathering the chaff to be, you know, gathering the wheat into the barns and gathering the uh, chaff to be burned, that the criterion there is um, these, these various works of charity, right? We need faith. Yes, faith is necessary for salvation. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but we also need hope and we also need charity, uh, the great commandment given by our Lord is to love him with his whole heart, your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't, uh, this isn't optional. When the rich young man asks our Lord, what must I do to be saved in uh, Matthew 19? He says, keep the commandments. So faith is the beginning. Uh, baptism, uh, that, that free gift of, of, of grace, is, is, the, uh, is the beginning but it's not the complete fulfillment of the will of God for our life. When St. Paul says uh, in Romans, we account a man to be justified by faith apart from the works of the law, he's talking about uh, uh, you know, the works of, of the Jewish law. And he actually cites circumcision specifically as an example. The church doesn't teach that purely human good works are meritorious for salvation, okay? but only those who perform works in a state of grace. Okay? like um, the, the branch drawing life from the vine, which is the image that our Lord used in John 15. So only good deeds, uh, only those good deeds work towards our salvation, only deeds done in the, uh, by the grace of God and the merits of Jesus Christ. But those offered to God by a soul in the state of grace, right, free from mortal sin, with the blessed Trinity dwelling in the soul, these are supernaturally meritorious, because they share in the work and the merits of Christ. And not only are those going to be rewarded by God, they're necessary for salvation. St. Paul shows uh, you know, how the neglect of certain good works will even send you to damnation. In 1 Timothy 5, he says, If any man have not care of his own, and especially those of his health, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Okay, If, if you don't live up to your faith, it's the same as denying your faith. Our Lord tells us, you know, that, that if the master returns and finds his servant sinning rather than performing works of obedience, Luke 12, 46, he shall separate him and shall appoint his portion with the unbelievers. We believe that uh, the Son of Man, our Lord himself, 
the Son of Man will render unto every man according to his works. That's Matthew 16, 27. And whosoever shall give drink to one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, amen, I say to him, to you, he shall not lose his reward. You know, we, 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 we follow the Apostle Paul. He says, every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. For God is not unjust that he should forget your works and the love that you have shown in his name, who have ministered and do minister to the saints. And finally, he says, I fought the good fight, finished my course, kept the faith. As to the rest, there is laid up for me a crown of justice with the Lord, uh, which the Lord, the just judge, will render to me in that day, and not only to me, but to them also that love his coming. Finally, St. James, of course, gives us the, the slam dunk. He says uh, in James chapter 2, do you see that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone? For even as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What shall it profit, my brethren, if a man say he hath faith but hath not works? Shall faith be able to save him? Wherefore, brethren, labor the more that by good works you may make sure of your calling and election. That's St. Peter. For doing these things you shall not sin at any time, for so an entrance shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, the point of all of this is to say that if faith ruled out the necessity of good works for salvation, then the early Christian fathers and the, the Scripture would not have advocated for them so eloquently and so powerfully. Justification by faith alone is a new doctrine that was unheard of in the Christian community before the 16th century. And in an attempt to um, accommodate the world and, and uh, our separated brethren, we must not lose sight of the fact that while God loves us unconditionally, our salvation is conditional, but only uh, something that we can accomplish through the help of his love and his grace, which is freely given, especially through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Okay, that's it for another uh, episode of No Nonsense Catholic. Hope to see you again soon. In the meantime, I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and I would like to encourage you, if you have um, not only uh, some time to pray for us, but also if you can uh, possibly help us out financially, make a one-time donation, or perhaps become a monthly donor, you can visit our website, bmpr.org, click on Donate, and it's all spelled out for you right there. Uh, we count on you for it, and especially on your prayers. So until next time, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. 
sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.